Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It is Friday, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the discussion of public policy issues. Each week, we take a look at a specific policy subject, and we have guests on the show that are experts in their fields. We do our best to stay away from politics. Instead, we concentrate on research and the expertise of our guests to help us to arrive at well-thought-out, comprehensive, integrated policy solutions to the shared challenges we face in society. Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects, from local municipal concerns to state and even national-level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. I'm Joe Moravchek. Co-hosting with me today is News Director Rich Larson. On today's program, we are going to discuss Constitution Day and our U.S. Constitution with Steve Poskanzer of Carleton College. On September 17, 1787, George Washington and 39 other delegates representing 12 states on the eastern seaboard, stretching from Massachusetts in the north to South Carolina in the south, signed the U.S. Constitution at Independence Hall in Philadelphia. This after months of debate at a constitutional convention to keep the young United States together, Washington, who served as our first president beginning in 1789, believed it would have been difficult to keep the initial 13 United States together without that convention. Notable signatories in addition to Washington were Ben Franklin and James Madison, Madison being credited as the primary author of the Constitution. And as for Franklin, he was the eldest statesman there in his 80s, and it is said that he had tears running down his face due to the significance of the event as he signed. But there were other high-profile founders missing, including Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, who were on assignment for the young nation in Europe, and Patrick Henry, who skipped it, greatly concerned about individual liberties being left out of early drafts and the potential for too much federally concentrated power. Rhode Island, the 13th state at the time, also primarily concerned about too much power at the national level, didn't send delegates to the convention and did not ratify the Constitution until the spring of 1790. Added to the original Constitution document in 1791 was a Bill of Rights to allay concerns about too much federal power and to safeguard individual liberties. The U.S. Constitution has been amended 27 times since its origin, the last amendment occurring in May of 1992. The document is currently on display in Washington, D.C. at the National Archives Museum. Our guest, Steve Poskanzer, is President Emeritus and Professor of Political Science at Carleton College with a current emphasis on teaching courses in constitutional law. He served as the 11th president of Carleton from 2010 to 2021. Mr. Poskanzer is a scholar of higher education law whose research focuses on how colleges and universities seek to promote academic values and achieve educational goals in a complex legal and policy environment. Steve holds a Bachelor of Arts degree from Princeton University and a Juris Doctor from Harvard University. It is our pleasure at KYMN to have Steve as a host for some of our public policy programming. Steve and I have hosted programs pertaining to the law, including space law and estate law. Steve has also done some programming with Alan Rosenstein of the University of Minnesota Law School on KYMN. Exceptional discussions 
previewing cases coming before the Supreme Court, and the review of eventual decisions. Listeners can find those archived programs on our website. Steve, welcome back to KYMN Studios. A short walk from the Carleton campus. It's always great to see you. Uh, Rich and Joe, great to be here with you to talk about a topic that both matters a lot to me and is very important. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think Joe and I would would uh, echo that. I mean, we, the Constitution is incredibly important to the both of us, and it's uh, it's uh, I don't know. I get excited about talking about it. So, well, okay. So, gentlemen, I I like I just said, I'm looking forward to our conversation today about uh, Constitution Day and our U.S. Constitution, which is now 236 years old. Uh, seriously, despite some uh, limitations, I would argue that the United States Constitution is the standard bearer for uh, your your foundational set of laws for any country in the world and any country that starts talking about a constitution, revi- revising their any. The United States Constitution is the gold standard. It's the it's a beacon of light. And uh, uh, I, I don't know. I'm very proud of it as an American. All right, Joe, get us into this discussion. Steve, in the early winter of 2004, Congress recognized that September 17th should be celebrated each year as Constitution Day. Why is that important? Why is it essential to study our U.S. Constitution? Well, first of all, because it is the absolutely critical framework, it's the er document, if you will, for how we govern ourselves, how we operate as a nation, how we try to achieve justice and fairness and equity. This is the, the bedrock that America is built on. Uh, Rich, you made a good comment about how the influence of this document is longstanding and international. Uh, mm-hmm. The U.S. Constitution is the longest surviving written governmental charter in the world. You know, England has an unwritten constitution that they predates ours. But, you know, this document is extraordinary. It has lived for a long time. It has evolved in fascinating ways. Uh, It is utterly vital to public discourse in the country today. And it is also an incredibly powerful lens or a tool through which to explore the history, the public policy, the social relations, the changing values and the enduring values of this country, all distilled into what's actually a relatively brief, easy to read, and uh, very yeah. much living document. Considering the other forms of government worldwide, authoritarianism, totalitarianism, totalitarianism, socialism, communism, monarchies, is there a genius to our U.S. Constitution? And what is it behind that? What, what, what is the genius to, to, to the writing of our, to the, our written constitution. It is an utterly brilliant document. Okay, now we'll talk during the course of the show about the flaws mm-hmm. and the weaknesses and mm-hmm. the gaps in the document, but mm-hmm. we should never lose sight of the power of this document. Right. The framers themselves, an extraordinarily compelling assemblage of statesmen. Uh, interesting, I used the word statesmen, and yeah, that is yeah, relevant to what yeah, we're going to talk about later is. on today. Uh, but these men debated, and they proposed, and they compromised, and went back and forth drawing on their knowledge of political philosophy mm-hmm. and a revolutionary war that they just fought. They had before them the task of setting up an entirely new government to work far into the future, and they achieved it. And that's an amazing accomplishment. 
Sometimes we forget the fact, and it is important to remember that what we think of as the Constitution is in some ways what really ought to be called America 2.0. There was an earlier version, okay? You know, while the Revolutionary War was being fought, Congress created a set of documents called the Articles of Confederation that operated until the Constitution supplanted it. Interesting story. The articles were still the operative document. The Constitutional Convention was actually called to propose amendments to the Articles of Confederation. They didn't they weren't tasked with, they weren't charged with this role of creating an entirely new constitution. But once they got in the room together, they quickly decided that that was what they needed to do instead because of many of the problems with the Articles of Confederation that we can talk a little bit more about if you would like. But what's striking to me is that the framers in Philadelphia found ways to solve the following types of problems. They kept large and powerful states and small and weaker states together in one union. Mm -hmm. They found a way to strike a balance, and it's a very delicate balance, between centralized federal power and state sovereignty. They found a way to create necessary checks and balances between the different branches, the legislative, the executive, the judicial parts of the federal government. And they also, and this one they took a little bit longer to get at, and we can also talk about that, but they found ways to protect individual liberties and essential freedoms that were valued by citizens that we just fought a revolutionary war over, Mm -hmm. but that were also going to be critical as we forged a new democracy going forward. The model that these framers put in place allowed this nation to grow literally from coast to coast, to develop a nationally integrated economy and a modern administrative state. This structure has allowed us to win wars, both foreign and domestic, a civil war relevant to this, to make progress in addressing some of the flaws and the inequality that also characterized America right from its very founding and before. It's an extraordinary, amazing document, and it has many lessons to teach us today. To me, that's one of the most amazing things, something you just hit on, is the fact that this document, as the country has grown, this document hasn't collapsed under its own weight, that it it has withstood a a, a civil war. It has withstood, the, and we're going to talk about this a little later. I'm getting ahead of myself, but it has withstood the... uh, the, the massive growth of this country that I'm not even sure the, 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 the founders and the framers foresaw. It, 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 is, it is, I mean, sometimes I have to wonder, Madison clearly was a genius, yeah. as were the people surrounding him, but some of this, some of this dumb luck Sure. Some of it was dumb luck. You know, being situated on a continent surrounded by two oceans gave us the freedom to do things that you didn't have in a European state. But some of it was visionary work by extraordinary people who are also, as we can talk about, extraordinarily flawed in Mm -hmm. some of their understandings, too. You know, this document did survive a civil war, but when you read it, the seeds of the civil war are omnipresent throughout the document, riddled through it. And it took constitutional amendments that we're still fighting over the meaning of them today to get us through the Civil War and to right. let states back into the country and under what circumstances. Right. So uh, undeniable that this document has proven beyond adaptable, and there are reasons for that. You know, yeah. the amendment process, which is both a strength and a weakness of the Constitution, is part of why it has been successful, but it may also be part of why our government feels very sclerotic at this moment in time, too. Steve, the preamble of the Constitution reads, We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, 
establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty do establish this Constitution. Certainly optimistic and grand language. But as you mentioned, there were flaws from the outset too. Expand on these limitations or flaws with the original writing of the Constitution and the ways perhaps in which it has not served us well. Sure. Obviously, if we've been saying you need to keep the flaws in balance with the many extraordinary ways in which it has served us. Absolutely. But any fair assessment of with hindsight, what you might have wanted to do differently in a constitution needs to start with who was included or who wasn't included in this national covenant right from day one. Right. Okay. Women. Are women mentioned in the constitution? The answer is no. Okay. Not until the 19th amendment. Okay. Do you see women mentioned in the constitution? Mm -hmm. Race and slavery are right from day one, the original sin and a problem with this document. Okay, Um, you know, a three fifths clause that enshrines the notion of treating slaves as property, fugitive slave clauses that guarantee that that property would be returned to its rightful owners. Uh, You know, definite race is a huge problem and not just with regard to the slaves. The indigenous persons Hmm. are also not welcome anywhere in this country. They are not part of the national covenant that is being created there in Philadelphia. So that's one thematic problem with the Constitution. Another one, and this is related to the first, but it is also distinct, it's in many ways not nearly as democratic a document. If you think in terms of democracy being an Athenian city-state with people directly participating in the government and everyone making decisions collectively, uh, you know, a New England town meeting would be another good mm-hmm. example of that. There are anti-democratic threads running through the document that we still struggle with today. You don't vote for the president of the United States. You vote for electors to the electoral college who themselves vote for the president. We didn't trust the people (laughs) to directly elect the president, okay? In those days, United States senators were elected by state legislatures Mm -hmm. who took a constitutional amendment to change that. Mm -hmm. So you don't have direct election of many of the most important figures. States were allowed to impose property requirements on voting, which meant that only landowners of a certain stature were truly able to be part of this country. Uh, Indeed, it's fascinating, and I was actually just making this point in a class I was teaching earlier today. I said to my students, point to the place in the Constitution where your right to vote is enshrined in the Constitution. You won't find it, okay? The Constitution does not include an actual right of voting. And what, how much of our current debates about reapportionment and drawing of districts and how elections should be run might be very different if there mm-hmm. were, in fact, a constitutional right to vote. So that's a problem. Anti-democratic threads in the document. The language of the document itself is also profoundly ambiguous. Sometimes that's a strength. That lets you adapt to new circumstances, but sometimes that's a weakness because you don't know what it means and the meanings can be deeply contested. What does liberty mean? What does due process mean? What does equal protection mean? What does commerce mean? You know, there are huge (laughs) debates about this and the vagueness of the terminology allows us to attach the meanings that we want to the Constitution or for meanings to evolve that we all agree on over time, but it also means that we're always going to be fighting about things. Last 
flaw that I would say is a major flaw is something I alluded to earlier, the difficulty to amend the Constitution. Mm -hmm. It's a strength in many ways. The Constitution has only been amended 27 times, and some of those amendments are technical and not particularly interesting. Um, But it also means that adapting to a changing world is much more difficult with the Constitution that requires a two-thirds majority of both houses of Congress and three-quarters of the states to agree on any given amendment. What that means in practical terms is that it will only approve something that is generally of broad value as seen by the vast supermajority of the public. This actually gets back to something I was asking Ed before. Uh, at the time the Constitution was written, there were 13 states and roughly 4 million U- U.S. citizens. Uh, our population then most commonly lived in, in rural settings, 95% of the population, in fact. Um, today, we have 50 states. Our population uh, is approaching 350 million. We're the third largest country in the world. We're the largest economy in the world. Uh, many of our uh, citizens live in large cities. Uh, our citizens are demographically diverse and diverse in thought. Was the U.S. Constitution written to be forward-looking, to anticipate this? And if so, how did they pull that off? Yeah, Absolutely, I believe the answer is yes to that question. They framers were keenly aware that they were trying to write a document that would go into the future. How far one could peer into that glass darkly, we don't know, but they certainly were trying to create something that would be a framework to last for many, many years. And you can see this in a number of ways. I touched upon one of them a moment, broad language that's capable of reaching many emerging situations. If you start with a principle that we care about liberty, if you start with a principle that you care about state sovereignty, if you start with a principle that we need to bind the states together in some sort of a federal union, you don't know how that's going to play out over time, but you still have this founding fundamental set of guidelines that are going to work for you, and they did that purposefully. Uh, The federal structure right from the very beginning, was meant to be flexible enough to allow additional states beyond those 13 to join the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Actually, even under the Articles of Confederation, the Northwest Ordinance that covered this part of the United States, a strikingly interesting forward-looking document and, you know, something that was achieved even before the Constitution. But that meant that the framers were definitely very mindful of creating a governmental framework that as the nation expanded west or north or in any other direction would let new states join. Hmm. I think that the very doctrine of separation of powers between executive, legislative, and judicial branches was constructed in a way that there was enough play in the joints with checks and balances to have each of those actors be able to evolve and change and stay locked always in this minuet dance with the other two branches, but that that was meant to work for the long, long haul. The amendment process, many you know, a big problem with the Articles of Confederation was there was no way to amend that document unless you had all 13 colonies agree. Mm. So they knew they needed to change that. They accounted for the fact that there would need to be amendments, even if they maybe made it a little bit harder than some current constitutional law scholars would think ideal. They were certainly trying to account for that. Mm. And then 
even if you look beyond the actual text of the document, the way that the history of the Constitution played out added additional flexibility and forward-looking elements to this. Perhaps the most famous example is Justice Marshall's appropriation for the Supreme Court of the power of judicial review of Mm. acts of Congress or acts of the executive Mm. branch. That's nowhere in the Constitution, okay? Historians argue that it may have been implied, inferred. It wasn't a completely novel concept, Mm -hmm. but it isn't enshrined in the document itself. And yet by the early 19th century, the Supreme Court has taken on this additional role, which is yet another very powerful check and balance that works in a very good way. All of these, to my mind, are examples of how the Constitution was both written and then in its early days took on characteristics that made it very forward-looking. Steve, regarding constitutional interpretation, what is originalism, what is textualism, and what is this notion of a living constitution? More generally, how should and do judges, not just Supreme Court justices, make sense of the meaning of this document and apply it to actual facts of cases? Well, I could teach a whole course on this, but let me start with a couple of little things, okay? Um, You asked about the judicial interpretation, and I want to begin by noting the fact that the Constitution really doesn't have very much to say about the judicial branch. There's much more talked about Congress and Congress's powers. There's much more about the executive branch than there is in Article 3, which is the one place where the judiciary is mentioned. In fact, the only judge that is mentioned anywhere in the Constitution is the Chief Justice of the United States, but he's not mentioned, or she's not mentioned, in the article about the judiciary. They're mentioned over the fact that they preside over impeachment trials hmm. of the president. Hmm. But there's nothing else about the court system. And in fact, the Constitution only envisions that there would be a Supreme Court and it took congressional action to set up a lower system of federal courts as well. That comes starting the Judiciary Act of 1789. So Congress and the court itself have actually played a larger role in figuring out how the Constitution should be interpreted than the actual constitutional document itself Mm -hmm. might have led you to believe. There are many many, many theories of how to approach the document. To my mind, and the way that I like to teach this and think about it, I envision a set of different theoretical tools or lenses that judges can use to consider the merits of any given case. And remember, under the Constitution, judges and the courts can only decide Cases and controversies, that's in Article 3. Our courts in this country are not in the business of just opining in the abstract about what the law should be. Mm -hmm. In fact, the Supreme Court will not issue advisory opinions on the law. There has to literally be a case, a controversy that finds its way to the court for the court to take up any issue. That in itself is an unusual thing. But as courts take up these issues, there are many different schools of thought about which tools they should use. When I teach this, I actually teach 10 different tools. I'm not going to bore you with going through (laughs) all of them, but I'll use a couple of examples right now, okay? One powerful tool is something that Joe just alluded to, which is textualism. Textual arguments are arguments that literally look at the words of the Constitution to say what do they mean. Okay, so uh, the Second Amendment of the Constitution speaks about the right of the people to keep and bear arms. 
what does that mean? Okay, and we may talk a little bit about the Heller case later on in this conversation, but textual arguments literally go to specific words, and they often go back and find dictionaries that were printed at the time the Constitution was written, or judicial cases, to argue about what those words mean. And there are famous judicial minds, both from the far left and from the far right, who over the years have adhered to close textual readings of the Constitution. Today, Clarence Thomas, very conservative justice, is known for textual readings, but in his day, Hugo Black, a great liberal justice, also would read the Constitution narrowly. When he sees the First Amendment, it says Congress shall make no law respecting freedom of expression. To Hugo Black, no law meant no, capital N, capital O. There could never be any laws on this textual argument. Mm -hmm. Second school of thought, or second conceptual lens, is something that I would call an original intention argument. This goes beyond Hmm. just looking at the literal words of the document to what those words were intended to mean at the actual time they were written. So you would go back with an original intention argument and use history and understand what the arguments were that gave rise to this particular language. Uh, You know, what was it that people meant when they passed the 14th Amendment and talked about no one being denied equal protection of the laws. Mm -hmm. What you want to look at is what people meant by that in 1868 when that language was passed. Original intention arguments are also very popular today. They, again, are tools that both judges who are conservative and judges that are liberal could use. You just go back and you try to find out what was really meant at the time. Brief aside here, meant by who at the time is an interesting question. You know, is the original intention the people that were sitting in the room in Philadelphia? What if you were sitting in the room and you didn't talk? And so there's no record of what you said. How do you know what that person's original intention is? Is the original intention not the people that were sitting in the room in Philadelphia, but the people in the 13 states that actually, in their own state conventions, approve the document? Or maybe, as John Hardili used to argue as a famous constitutional historian, the original intention that we really should care about was the original intention of the people who actually voted for in state mm-hmm. referenda, the adoption of this constitution. So what James Madison says in his notes by that theory doesn't matter nearly as much as the collective decision of New England shareholders in Brookline or cobblers in Philadelphia mm-hmm. who went to the polls and voted for this constitution. That's a problem with original intention beyond the fact that history is murky and it's always hard mm-hmm. to say what it meant. That's mm-hmm. a second tool. There are ways of constructing what I would call consequential arguments to interpret the Constitution. These would be decisions that would be based on what the outcome would be. You're trying to achieve a result that you believe is consistent with the goals of the document and what folks intended it to be, but as opposed to being as focused on the words or on the thoughts that might have been going through the framers, you are thinking a little bit more about what the consequences of any given decision might be right now. Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, probably a more consequential argument by the Warren Court. The court is deciding not because there was guidance in the language of the document or No one in 1789 was worrying or thinking about (laughs) integrated schools. And to the extent that they might have been, they would not have wanted 
integrated right. schools. And yet by 1954, the court is saying this country needs to move in a direction of ending separate but equal. We don't want discrimination. Probably a more consequential view of the mm -hmm. document. Hmm. I'll give you one last example. And again, there are many more of these. There are what I would call ethical arguments about the Constitution. These are based more on making sure that our decisions of cases and our interpretation of the document are fundamentally consistent with and reflective of the ethos of this country as it's been shaped by the Revolutionary War, by the Civil War, by the aspirations of America as a nation. It's very mindful of history and of the lessons that we learn from history, and yet it's sort of an aspirational way of viewing what the Constitution is meant to be, what are the core democratic principles, the core principles of liberty and of representation and of a personal autonomy and accountability that underlie this document and trying to stay true to them. These are just four of many different conceptual lenses. Uh, you know, there's prudential arguments, there's past practice arguments, there's international law, there's structural arguments, there's natural law arguments. These are all lenses or tools that you have in your judicial toolbox or your legal commentator toolbox to try and make sense of the Constitution and interpret it in a way that lets you solve the problems that come before the court. Does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> yes. It's, it's it, never as simple as it's in the same way that, you know, you don't use a hammer for every problem you have right, in the house. Right. You know, right. you don't. None of these one tools is a absolute perfect fits all for everything. Textual arguments are really important, but they lose sight of the forest for the trees. Sometimes mm -hmm. an original intention argument We'd be foolish to disregard what the framers actually meant when they passed the document, except history is so vague and the sources to sort it out are so indeterminate that you can't ever really know, mm -hmm. much less this question of whose intention you're trying to get to. Right. Doesn't mean you should ignore this stuff, but by itself, it may not be enough. Okay, so then looking at some of the examples you brought up, looking at something like Brown versus Board of Education, looking at the 19th Amendment, mm -hmm. um, would you then argue that the Constitution then is a living, breathing document? And how has, I mean, you, you, you've answered this a little bit, but how has the Constitution evolved yeah. over time? Absolutely, it's a living, breathing document. But that doesn't mean that the original intention of the framers or the people that passed the amendments should be blithely disregarded. You know, Katanji Brown-Jackson, our latest justice, absolutely describes herself as an originalist. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think most judges would say that, of course, you need to be mindful of the original intent of the document. Over time, over the, you know, almost 250 years that we've had the Constitution now, 240, you know, I do see that there are definitely trends that one can spot when you look holistically over the course of history. There is a trend over time towards greater equality mm -hmm. in our society. We spoke earlier of the inequality that was baked into the original text. You know, there is a 13th Amendment that ended slavery. There is a 14th Amendment and 15th Amendment that reconstructed and brought mm -hmm. equal protection and gave the right to vote to the ex-slaves. There was a 19th Amendment that gave women the right to vote. Things are perhaps not as equal as we would want them mm -hmm. to be, but it is undeniable that over time things are more equal than they would have been in 1789. Mm -hmm. There's a second trend that I teach that 
shows there's greater liberty recognized over time. People are not only free to move around the country, but what lives they want to live and what they want to do with their personal, uh, sometimes their physical integrity. Mm -hmm. And of course, that gets into issues of reproductive rights, uh, what people choose to do and pursue in terms of a career, how people live their lives. There's always been a fiercely independent streak towards the American character. And I think over time that has been recognized and celebrated and given more and more judicial heft over time. I think that over time we have also seen the development of a modern integrated and indeed now global economy that is very different from these separate little confederated 13 states that were so worried about, you know, New Jersey taxing commerce from New York. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time you reach the 20th century and the Roosevelt's New Deal, mm-hmm. the Supreme Court is approving all kinds of legislation that enables us to create the modern government and the modern state and a modern economy. Of course, that will always give rise to counter-arguments the other way. Has the central government become too powerful? And we see that playing out right now in debates in American politics. But undeniably, the living document that is the Constitution helped us forge a modern nation as opposed to just a quaint little assemblage of 13 states. When you read the amendments of the Constitution, they actually tell this story. They tell a story of greater equality, greater liberty, more of a nationally integrated economy. But that story that they tell are not direct lines connecting point A to point B. Sometimes we take one step forward and two steps back, and then we've got to take three steps forward. Sometimes we go off on weird little sidelights. You know, the amendment, you know, creating prohibition and the amendment ending prohibition, that's two of your 27 amendments. You could just yep. wipe those out right now. So now you're down to 25 yep. amendments. You they know. cancel each other they out. They cancel Absolutely. each other out. Yep. You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. We're broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Joe Moravchuk. Alongside is Rich Larson. Today's guest is Steve Poskanzer, professor of political science and president emeritus of Carleton College. Currently, Steve teaches courses on constitutional law. Our topic today is the U.S. Constitution. We discussed this topic in the same week that our Constitution is celebrated, September 17th of each year. Steve, Thomas Jefferson, our third president and the primary author of the Declaration of Independence, which of course preceded the Constitution by about a decade, wrote, In questions of power, let no more be said of confidence in man, but bind him down from the mischief by the chains of the Constitution. Certainly a statement about limiting powers of government and perhaps the importance of personal liberties. Let's go back to the months leading up to the signing of the Constitution in 1787, the Constitutional Convention. How contentious was the dialogue between these big personalities and the competing interests of the 13 individual states at this time in our nation's young history? Oh, extraordinarily contentious. And, you know, we don't have terribly complete records of what actually took place in the room. Madison is regarded as the father of the Constitution in part because he took more complete notes than other people. And, you know, and he 
certainly wrote those notes in ways to make Madison look good, which that's you know, <laughs> never happened before in history, right? Okay, which that's is not, not the American way at all. Right. I mean. Which is not to say that Madison was not a genius and right. put a stamp on this document because he clearly did. But right from the creation of this group that acted in secret because, as I said earlier, its charge was not to write a constitution. Its charge was to amend the Articles of Confederation. Fights about what we should have, how we should govern ourselves, and the role of individuals versus the states have always been fierce. And they played out no more fiercely than in the months and years immediately after the Constitution was signed while the ratification debates were taking place in each of the states. There were fights between Federalists who supported the Constitution and Anti-Federalists in each state. And, of course, the famous Federalist Papers mm-hmm. were written by John Jay and Madison and Alexander Hamilton mm-hmm. to try and sway in New York State the decision about where things would play out in that state's ratification debates. There were many folks who argued that we should not approve the Constitution because it did not sufficiently protect the liberty of individuals. This was perhaps the most powerful argument that the anti-federalists made. They, in many states, literally refused to adopt the Constitution or adopted it provisionally, saying that we adopt it only under the understanding that there will shortly be added to the Constitution a Bill of Rights. Hmm. Okay? Or in some cases, it was even a precondition to their adopting it. The federalists were themselves torn on this. Some people said the Constitution was really flawed because nobody's rights were guaranteed. But an argument back was made, well, if you start listing the rights and you won't know what they all are, you're going to miss things. And so rights that we list that are not (laughs) enshrined somehow then might be more vulnerable than you would otherwise think. That's actually what the Ninth and the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution actually do. They reserve to the states and to the people the rights that are not otherwise identified. The notion there is, if it ain't here, it still belongs to the people. Sure. So huge fights about this Hmm. right from the very beginning. And while they take different forms over the years, those fights are still waging today. You know, how much liberty do I have? Right. Do I have the right to control my reproductive autonomy? Do I have the right to fall in love with and marry whoever I want, regardless of traditional notions of marriage? Do I have the right to live my life in a countercultural style that other people may disapprove of? These are all questions of liberty, and one of the great fault lines in the Constitution are tensions between our commitment and a desire to promote individual liberty and freedom on the one hand versus our desire to have a governing, functioning society on Mm -hmm. the other hand. And those two things are not always in complete accord. There is tension. Hmm. Oops. Hang on. Sorry, guys. I want to go off script for just a second, Steve, and ask you a question. Uh, this is probably more of an opinion than anything else. There's I'll, a, be, I'll be careful. I <laughs> <laughs> There's a very famous American legend uh, about the signing of the Constitution. Uh, after it had been signed, uh, Ben Franklin is walking out of uh, the, the hall, and he's stopped by a woman who asks him, well, Dr. Franklin, what kind of government do we have? And he looked at her and he said, and I can't remember, I've heard it both a ways. A republic if you can keep it. A republic if you can keep it, or it's a democracy. I've heard it both ways. How much faith did the founding fathers, did the framers have 
in the document that they had just signed and in the people that they were looking to organize? That's a great question, and I am comfortable opining on this. Okay. I think they had enormous faith. Okay. okay. They had just pledged their life, liberty, and sacred honor, okay, to win a war against the most powerful nation in the world, okay? And against pretty extraordinary odds, they succeeded, okay? They knew keenly that they were trying to create a government in this new world, and they were well-schooled in the political philosophy of the time from, you know, Locke and Montesquieu and Adam Smith. They are very purposely experimenting with great faith and great hope that they would create a nation that would endure. Okay. How or in and what... they succeeded. Well, they did. Well, so far, right? 236 years in, we're, yep. we're, we're, we're still here, mm-hmm. right? So how and what or what ways then our, our constitutional law and politics linked. Yeah, they're intimately wrought up with each other. I think constitutional law and constitutional politics are really the two sides of the same coin, okay? Mm-hmm. They're always interconnected. The tensions between the animating values of government and the animating values of individual lives inevitably create disputes and legal controversies. And Mm -hmm. this was predictable, and they absolutely predicted it and understood this. One of the best ways, and I've alluded to this earlier in our conversation today, is to think about fault lines that exist in our society and in our government that are also embodied in the Constitution. And these fault lines generate all kinds of legal disputes that we wrestle with, but they fall into some very basic categories. Mm -hmm. There is tension, as I said, between personal liberty, I can do whatever I want, on the one hand, versus order and government effectiveness. You know, you can't have anarchy. People, if everybody just did whatever they wanted all the time, people would take whatever they wanted and that doesn't work, right? But you've got to have both. There's a fault line between privacy, on the one hand, and accountability to your role within society. On the one hand, we want everybody to be able to be private in your books, your effects, your personal papers, your private life, the most intimate aspects of your private life. Many of us would absolutely agree that there needs to be privacy, but yet we also want us, because we live in a society with each other, we need to be accountable, not just to ourselves, but to others as well. That's a tension point. There are tensions inherent in government in the government itself. State governments versus federal governments. What's the role of each? You know, we didn't create a unitary entity. There were these 13 colonies that came together to form the government. They kept sovereignty. And so what is the tension between those two? Separation of powers within the federal government. Not everything is decided by Congress. And they knew that things couldn't be decided by Congress. So what is the role of the courts? What's the role of the executive branch? All of these fault lines that are there from day one are political in some very real sense. And so the politics and the law become tied up together. Uh, Here's a good quote that I brought with me to to share on this, okay? Um, Some constitutional scholars would say the following things. Judge-made constitutional law disciplines constitutional politics, but it continues to possess that power only by retaining its public legitimacy 
and therefore only by partially reflecting constitutional politics. If the law is supposed to limit the politics, the law can only do that because it's in tune with the politics. These two things cannot be broken apart. So the notion that we could ever have courts or judges that would be non-political. Apolitical, yeah. Not achievable. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we aspire, we yearn for legitimate reasons, for decisions to be made not just on political grounds. We want decisions to be just and fair and to command respect. And if they are only viewed as zero-sum political games, I get what I want, even if that hurts you because you want something differently, the law is no longer vested with the authority that Mm -hmm. it needs to be effective. Hmm. Let's talk about it. A couple of examples of how the Constitution and politics mix. The Second Amendment reads in part that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And in a case titled District of Columbia v. Heller, which you mentioned early on, the Supreme Court held that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to possess a firearm unconnected with service in a militia and to use that firearm for traditionally lawful purposes such as self-defense within the home. There are, of course, other cases to consider concerning carrying a gun outside the home. In these recent weeks, the governor of New Mexico, Michelle Lujan Grisham, recently ordered a short-term emergency ban on the right to carry a firearm in Albuquerque in an attempt to quell gang violence. I'd imagine this is an interesting story to cover in a constitutional law course. How do such legal fights get resolved Walk us through this. Sure. Well, my quick and glib answer to you is they never get resolved, okay? (laughs) They never can get resolved because at some level they turn on and they expose those fundamental fault lines that we're just talking about. In this case, this is a fault line in gun control about personal liberty on the one hand versus order and government effectiveness on the other. Uh, Gun rights are absolutely fascinating issue, and this is something I teach in one of my courses. Uh, Until the early 21st century, there was actually very little Supreme Court constitutional precedent dealing with the Second Amendment. Hmm. Uh, There's no constitutional precedent dealing with the Third Amendment about quartering troops in homes, okay? (laughs) But the Second Amendment was almost as bad as the Third Amendment was. The Heller case back in 2008 was the first case, the first time the Supreme Court ever found an individual right to possess firearms for personal use, especially in situations of confrontation. Hmm. Up until then, the bulk of the very limited precedent on the Second Amendment seemed to point actually in a different direction, that the Second Amendment was more about the use of weaponry in the context of militia. Again, uh, you know, the very first part of the the, the amendment speaks about militia purposes. And so that's where the court had been focused until the Heller case. But this court has now clearly moved in a different direction. Okay. And since Heller, there has certainly been an established Second Amendment right to individual possession of firearms. But the Heller opinion left many things unresolved. When you actually read the opinion, at the end of the majority opinion, the court says its decision does not necessarily preclude bans on carrying concealed weapons Mm -hmm. or bans on felons or the mentally ill possessing weapons Mm -hmm. or regulations limiting the carrying of guns in sensitive locations like schools or churches or government buildings. And the Heller opinion says it isn't isn't necessarily deciding there couldn't be limits on commercial sales of arms. 
all of these issues get presented and opened up in the years following Heller, and we're still working our way through them. Mm -hmm. So in 2022, just a year and a half ago now, there was a case, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. The court went beyond Heller for the first time and expanded the right that it described in Heller to declare that the right to bear arms extends to publicly carrying guns for self-defense outside the home. So much of the Heller decision was all about people being secure in their homes. The court now moved beyond Heller in that case. This fall, the court is about to take up the next case in this set of unresolved issues. Uh, This is something that probably Alan Rosenstein and I will talk about in coming weeks. But there's a case, United States versus Rahimi, and it is posing the question about whether or not the government can can prohibit firearm possession by a person who is already subject to a domestic violence restraining order. Mm. These issues aren't ever resolved, okay? They get right. sorted out and new, and the rights that people would not have said were a Supreme Court right to have an individual rights to firearm right now in the last 15 years have been recognized and seem to be growing in scope, mm-hmm. but that pendulum swings in different directions. Mm-hmm. And certainly Bruin went beyond Heller, I don't think we know yet what's going to happen in Rahimi. feels like a very different kind of case. Mm-hmm. That tension between personal liberty and effectiveness of government and people's safety might strike a different balance. We'll see. Hmm, very interesting. The First Amendment, of course, reads that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. And now we know that Hugo Black says no means no. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, the town square in 1791 was literally a physical town square. You know, picture the gazebo at its center. After all, New York City in that era had roughly 30,000 inhabitants compared to the nearly 9 million today. And in theory, citizens could exchange ideas and openly debate in the town square without fear of reprisal per the Bill of Rights. But it can be argued that the town square is a digital space now certainly a place for the exchange of ideas, but also for misinformation and bullying, primary on cell phones, and a place where speech can be regulated or even squelched by the tech companies that own the platforms where speech and ideas are exchanged. Smartphones and big tech were not likely anticipated by the framers. This is all problematic constitutionally related to free speech, or is it? Untangle this for us, if you would. Sure. You know, Perhaps the, that's another full course. Yeah, it is a full course. Okay. Uh, it's also calls to mind, you know, the story about Hercules having to untangle the Gordian knot, right? You know, <laughs> untangle and he takes his sword and cuts it in half, right? Um, free speech is another area of constitutional law that ultimately turns on that same fault line, that same tension we've been talking about. Personal mm-hmm. liberty to say, think, articulate what I believe Mm -hmm. versus order and government effectiveness. Uh, You know, and those two things are always in tension with each other. Remember Justice Holmes' famous quip that free speech doesn't give you the right to shout fire in a crowded theater. Okay, there's Mm -hmm. your tension point right there. The the, the great philosopher Stan Lee, with great power comes great responsibility. Absolutely, okay. I love it. I've got Oliver Wendell Holmes and Stan Lee in the same two minutes. Perfect, okay. You know, over many decades, and actually the First Amendment, there was very little jurisprudence on the First Amendment until the 20th century, really starting around the time of World War I is when the First Amendment really begins to be a constitutional focal point. But in the last century, First Amendment jurisprudence has evolved to cover all kinds of new communication. You know, when they wrote this document, there were newspapers, okay, but, you know, 
radio, movies, television, internet, all of those things have come to pass. And it actually turns out that the First Amendment has covered many of these new technologies mm -hmm. reasonably well. We've been able to adopt, this is a good example of Constitution having enough play in the joints, the same principles actually can apply even in different types of media. So in some respects, I would argue that online communication isn't utterly unprecedented, okay, and that we can at least begin to untangle this Gordian knot by looking at some of the most relevant rules that have worked in other types of communication. Mm -hmm. So what are those rules? Important to remember anytime you talk about the First Amendment that the First Amendment says the government or Congress shall make no laws restricting speech. It doesn't apply to private parties. Mm -hmm. Okay? So, you know, if you say to your kids, in my house there is no free speech rights, you know, um, a workplace, you know, that's all constitutionally legitimate. So your free speech rights are rights against the government, right. not against private parties. Right. Okay? So in theory... Facebook or Twitter, I guess Twitter's now X and Facebook X. is now Meta. Okay. So, you know, <laughs> X as a private forum for speech should be able to set up its own rules, barring folks who violate the rules. You don't have to be part of the X community. Mm -hmm. They can set up whatever rules they want, and that's not a First Amendment problem. Okay. But let's focus a little bit more on government regulation of speech, since that's really where the First Amendment applies. And maybe the thing that we worry the most about, okay? Um, the first thing to remember here is that courts hate, really hate, content-based restrictions on speech. So banning the discussion of a particular topic, or even worse, banning bringing a particular viewpoint about an issue, banning it because of that viewpoint, the government isn't supposed to do that. And there's mm -hmm. a long line of cases that's now very established First Amendment jurisprudence. And that long line of cases should give free speech advocates some comfort. Hmm. You shouldn't, the government should not be limiting what you say because of who you are, what you're talking about, or what your viewpoint on right. things are. But it is important to also keep in mind that there are types of speech that aren't protected. You know, physical threats. If I come up to you and I, you know, I can be punished for threatening you, mm -hmm. and that's speech, okay? Yeah. You know, encouraging somebody to commit a crime, okay? You can punish someone for conspiracy, right? Rich, you know this because you're in the media. Libel, defamation, okay? Yeah. Certainly not speech that receives the same level of protection right. as that quintessential political speech that we're talking about. Speech that causes unlawful conduct. This is like Holmes and that fire in the theater, mm -hmm. okay? Um, the court's standard on this has shifted a lot over time, but the current balance that the Supreme Court strikes between the importance of public debate and any idea getting expressed on the one hand and the importance of public safety and security, mm -hmm. okay, that the state might be able to punish certain types of speech, this is the rule that we currently follow, okay? There are ways the government is allowed to punish speech if it intentionally incites imminent and likely lawless behavior, okay? That's a lot of adjectives in there, yeah. and you gotta check off every single one of them to make it possible for the court. But if you're literally inciting people to violate the law and it's gonna happen right now, that's something the government doesn't have to stand by, and mm -hmm. that could be punished. But even that standard is very protective of speech. 
including speech that would be online speech. I could imagine lots of speech online that is intentionally inciting people, mm -hmm. okay, but the likelihood of it actually turning into lawless behavior isn't going to happen. The government's not going to regulate that type right. of speech. So generally speaking, over time, again, this is a trend, our country has moved in a direction of more protection of free speech. Mm -hmm. In the aftermath of World War I and the 1919 Red Scare, there are troubling to our current minds Supreme Court precedents where folks are punished for passing out pamphlets that you shouldn't support the draft or that we didn't support the World War I war effort. Yeah. You know, by the time we work through World War II and the McCarthy era Red Scare, where there are still some not so great precedents, mm -hmm. but by the time we get to the Vietnam War and the mm -hmm. Iraq War, the ability of our society to tolerate more dissent even during wartime has gotten better. There's a great book on this. He's a friend of mine, but he's maybe the most important First Amendment scholar in the United States called Perilous Times by Jeffrey Stone that sort of lays out this long history of how America has responded to dissent in wartime. And mm. it's actually a positive story. Hmm. Interesting. Folks, you're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Rich Larson. My co-host is Joe Moravchik. Today's guest is Steve Poskanzer, professor of political science and former president of Carleton College. Currently, Steve teaches courses on constitutional law. Our topic today is the U.S. Constitution. Uh, we discuss this topic in the same week that our Constitution is celebrated, September 17th of each year. Steve, easily one of the most m moving moments uh, that I have ever had is when I um, uh, visited the National Archives and, and saw the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights um, in Washington, D.C., um, as a professor of con law, um, what did it mean to you, assuming that you have been there and, done, and, and had this experience, yeah. uh, to view those documents in person? Yeah, I have had that experience a number of times. Um, like you, it's humbling. It's inspiring. It, you know, there it is right in front of you. Right you know, there. There's the Declaration. There's the Constitution. There's the Emancipation Proclamation. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, these documents are... Fascinating as historical artifacts, but they also are tangible evidence of the history of this country and also of the vision of, as we said earlier, the brilliant and yet in some ways still humanly flawed leaders that created the Constitution. Mm -hmm. But, you know, out of whole cloth, they wrote a declaration. They forged a Constitution. They emancipated the slaves. Um, understanding that these things happened and there is the tangible manifestation of it that's my powerful yeah it's very powerful um you've been uh, a college president you're now back in the classroom at carlton what constitutional law courses are you teaching and, and how enjoyable is it for you to be back in in the classroom teaching this stuff Ah, well we told the story about this earlier today that i guess i probably will have to reveal but um Look, I love teaching, and one of the best things about teaching is when teaching goes well, it is the greatest feeling in the world, and when <laughs> teaching goes badly, you feel like a complete failure as a teacher. I joked with Rich and Joe earlier today that uh, in my constitutional law course today, I could not get my beautiful, uh, aesthetically pleasing slides to show up on the scene before me, and it drove me crazy, and I felt like a complete failure in the class today, but... Um, 
I teach two courses on constitutional law. At one point, they were taught as a chronological course of American history, you know, starting with the Articles of Confederation, going through, you know, the Civil War amendments up until the 20th century. I'm neither a historian nor do I think students are that terribly interested in, you know, early 20th century fights about the Lochner decision anymore. So I blew up the chronological courses and I teach two linked but you don't have to have taken the first before you can take the second course on constitutional themes. Both of my courses deal with the theme of how the government has changed and evolved and grown over time. Both of my courses deal with the theme that we've spoken about today about more equality over time, and both of the courses deal with the theme of more liberty over time. But I make those points in different ways. The first course deals more with federalism the differences between state and federal power. The second course deals more with the separation of powers within the federal government. The first course deals more with race on issues of equality because race, I would argue, is in many ways the continuing shame and unfinished business of this country. Mm -hmm. uh, my second course deals more with gender and LGBTQ rights. Okay. My first course deals more with on the issue of liberty changing over time on the tension between the free exercise clause and the establishment clauses of the First Amendment. What's the role of religion in our lives and in our public sphere? And the second course deals in terms of more liberty over time with the rest of the Bill of Rights. Some of the free speech stuff we were speaking about earlier, Second Amendment, gun rights, reproductive freedom issues, obviously very important to the court right now after the Dobbs decision. Uh, so I sort of more topically deal with the themes that we have been speaking about here today. Hmm. And you are writing a book right now, too, are you not? What, what, tell <laughs> us, tell, uh, Books on a different topic. Oh, uh, I, though I, I, it, my book is on when it's right and when it's wrong for colleges and universities as institutions right. to take stances on political, economic, moral, and social issues. Right. A little bit less constitutional, although the free speech rights under the First Amendment overlap with both individual and institutional academic freedom rights. But I would argue, and this is a, clearly a topic for another show, mm. that the purpose of the First Amendment at its core is about promoting a healthy democracy and political discourse, whereas the purpose of academic freedom is more at its core about discovery of knowledge. And so they achieve parallel, but not always completely overlapping goals. On this show, as you well know, we always like to give our guests the last word. What, uh, what did we not talk about about the Constitution, Steve, that needs to be, uh, needs to be said? Oh, there's so much we could talk about. You know, what <laughs> amendments would we most like? You know, what parts of the Constitution do you find most necessary to preserve in its current value? Which of these different conceptual tools that I only gave you a, you know, a, a trailer about should we use? To me, by far the most important thing, and this maybe brings us back to Constitution Day, you know, this was a holiday that was created to remind all of us about the centrality of this document and the ever-omnipresent relevance of the document. I would say that the more, what's been a joy about this conversation is the fact that I've got two friends and colleagues who are as excited and see this document as important as I do. The more people we can find out there and the more people we can convince that the Constitution is highly relevant to their mm -hmm. daily lives and mm -hmm. that we should all care about it, 
that would be a really good thing for American democracy. That's my last word for the day. I want to give a quick plug to, um, you can find uh, f- find these shows on uh, KYMNradio.net and within our podcast, and there's another one coming up. The, 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 the conversations that Steve has with Professor Alan Rosenstein uh, about the, the workings of the Supreme Court and looking at upcoming cases and decisions that have been made, these are some of the finest hours of radio I have ever heard in my entire life. No question. And I, uh, you, you're not going to find, uh, I defy you to find better conversation that's easier to grasp at a higher level than, than these conversations. I, I would strongly recommend folks you check that out. Well, this has been another great and interesting conversation, but we're going to wrap it up here today. Steve Poskanzer, President Emeritus and current professor at Carleton College. Thank you for being a part of Public Policy This Week on KYMN. The objective for Public Policy This Week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, each Friday morning from 10 o'clock to 11 a.m. And if you don't catch the program live, you can pull up the podcast of each program uh, or go to our website, kymnradio.net, and you will find every archived show. Just look for our public policy this week, capital logo on your favorite uh, uh, podcast platform or on our website. Be uh, sure to join us for next Friday's edition of Public Policy This Week. Have an outstanding Friday, everyone, and a superb weekend. Take care. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.